The massive Woolsey fire in Southern California started at the site of the Santa Susana Field Lab, within 1,000 yards of a building that housed an experimental nuclear reactor and spewed radiation after a 1959 meltdown. This contaminated the area with radionuclides, which remain on site. The smoke, particulate matter, and ash that resulted from the Woolsey fire is logically believed to have contained and aerosolized this radioactive material yet again. Now, government and industry so-called experts are trying to downplay the dangers to people living in the area. But when you hear a genuine non-industry expert tell you, in addition to the people who have already been exposed, people who are alive in 1959 and, and earlier, now we have exposed a whole new generation with a whole new dose of this toxic radiation, basically because we did not have the political will to go out immediately and clean the plant up. Well, when you hear something like that from someone with the credentials to back it up, and especially if you live anywhere in the pathway of the smoke from the Woolsey fire, you suddenly realize that you are not immune and you are sitting in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we dive deeper into the problems with the Woolsey fire having started at the Santa Susana Field Lab, within 1,000 yards of the building where a nuclear reactor melted down in 1959. Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health gives us the history not only of the Santa Susana Field Lab site, but of other nuclear accidents at reactors around the country, what their impact was on health, how those consequences have been hidden from public view, and the difficult truths he's excavated through medical epidemiology. That's the examination of medical statistics. If you live near any nuclear site, and especially if you live in Southern California, and most especially near Santa Susana, this is a must-listen interview. Plus, we will have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, Activist shout-outs, including hearing from Arnie and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education with an update on how to get the dust in your house tested if you live within 25 miles of Santa Susana. And we'll also have more honest nuclear information than has thus far shown up on Mars based on findings from NASA's InSight probe. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 27, 2018, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Idaho, on Saturday, November 17, an explosion at a hazardous waste site 
in the southeastern part of that state, killed one worker, injured three others, and heavily damaged a building. The U.S. Ecology facility is about 50 miles south of Boise. After initial reports avoided any mention of possible radiation releases, on Tuesday, November 20th, air monitoring systems were set up to check for low-level nuclear radiation as well as other harmful contaminants. U.S. Ecology takes in low-level radioactive waste, quote, but none of the material was believed, that's a spin-speak word, believed to be near the explosion on Saturday. This according to Albert Crawshaw of the Idaho Department of Environmental Quality. Crawshaw went on to say the company reported that the low-level radioactive waste at the site had already been buried at the time of the explosion. Hopefully we will learn from future reports whether the dog really did eat the homework. At the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant near Carlsbad, New Mexico, an underground mine where low- and mid-level transuranic nuclear waste is permanently stored, a portion of the ceiling in one of the storage rooms collapsed. Initially, WIP officials said that it happened in an area that allegedly didn't contain any radioactive waste, but there was nuclear waste in room 6 of panel 7 where the ceiling collapsed. Operators Nuclear Waste Partnership has admitted the problem and then said, but there was no contact handled waste in the room, which makes it sound like things that you actually have your hands on, but refers to a lower level of radiation. However, we've learned that there were two canisters of what's called remote-handled waste, which sounds like robots did it, but really it means that higher levels of radiation were present. These canisters of higher-level radioactive waste were emplaced ahead of an accidental radiological release in 2014, which led to not only sealing off the room, but it closed the facility for three years. Don Hancock, director of the Nuclear Waste Program at Southwest Research and Information Center and a regular contributor to Nuclear Hot Seat, said the facility is still not safe for workers and pointed out that the room where the collapse happened also contained equipment and fuel, some of which could have been contaminated during the 2014 release. Hancock said this was a serious event. It really wasn't reported that way, but this is a symptom of a bigger problem. In Pennsylvania, Beyond Nuclear has filed a request for a public hearing on Exelon Corporation's attempt to extend the Peach Bottom Nuclear Plant's operating licenses by 20 years. In its request to the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Beyond Nuclear says Exelon must explain how it's prepared to handle the, quote, increasing wear and tear of the nuclear plant through its extended lifespan. Beyond Nuclear's Reactor Oversight Project Director Paul Gunter said, the application doesn't adequately measure the consequences of aging. Current licenses for Peach Bottom's two generating units expire in 2033 and 2034. If extensions are granted, the licenses would be extended to 2053 and 2054. In South Carolina, a nuclear consultant says that South Carolina Electricity and Gas, or SCE&G, lied to regulators in order to keep the VC Summer Nuclear Reactor Project going. Gary Jones, a consultant with more than 45 years of experience in nuclear power, told the South Carolina Public Service Commission that SCE&G deceptively hid a sobering $1 million report on the project's flaws 
and ignored its own employees' projections of how much the floundering project would cost to finish. Instead, Jones said, SCENG fed state regulators overly optimistic and unrealistic projections, which it never achieved, before the utility and its minority partner, the state-owned Santee Cooper Utility, canceled the long-delayed and over-budget construction of two new reactors at the V.C. Summer Nuclear Station in July of 2017. Jones testified for more than five hours on a week-long hearing that will set SCNG's new rates and decide who, the utility's owners, customers, or both, will have to pay over its nearly $5 billion in construction debt. What are the odds that the bulk, if not the totality, lands on the ratepayers? Because, hey, they're nuclear. They can get away with it. In Japan, on Saturday, November 24, a powerful earthquake measuring 5.0 on the Richter scale struck the Japanese nuclear disaster zone of Fukushima. While officials said almost immediately that it is not, quote, believed to have caused major damage, there's that spin-speak word again, believe, the quake could be felt as far away as Tokyo, 150 miles to the southwest, and there was a long rattling reported in Yokohama, which is 165 miles to the south. Plus, what a post-traumatic stress freakout to anyone who went through it. So-called experts from the International Atomic Energy Agency have urged Tokyo Electric Power Company, the operator of Japan's tsunami-wrecked Fukushima nuclear plant, to urgently decide on a plan to dispose of massive amounts of radioactive water stored in tanks on the compound. Nearly one million tons of radioactive water. TEPCO admits that the water contains cancer-causing cesium and other elements in excess of allowable limits for release into the environment. Nuclear so-called experts say the only realistic option is to release the water into the Pacific Ocean. But fishermen and residents strongly oppose the proposal, as do most sane people. With America's President Donald Trump threatening to quit the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF, both countries accuse each other of violating the treaty, and now Russian President Vladimir Putin would have the power to launch nuclear first strikes under plans approved by the Russian parliament in response to conventional weapon attack. Boys, stop rattling those sabers before you get us all killed. New York Times headline. Saudis want a U.S. nuclear deal. Can they be trusted not to build a bomb? No. That's how India and Pakistan got their bombs. But the point might be moot because a group of Republican senators is urging a halt to talks on selling U.S. nuclear power equipment to Saudi Arabia in response to the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. If that's not a bipartisan issue, I don't know what is. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Sometimes nuclear timing is so far off as to be laughable. Take, for example, the recent announcement that Riach and Hall Architects and K2 Architects have been named the winners of the Royal Institute of British Architects Moorside Contest to provide a visitor center and workers' accommodations for the Cumbrian Nuclear Power Station, which was canceled earlier this month. 
or the pro-nuclear propaganda film The New Fire, which proudly touts all the way through the marvelous achievements and future accomplishments of Transatomic, which collapsed in September, not only failing to fulfill what was glowingly praised as their great promise, but losing their entire capitalization of $4.5 million. Of course, there's a title card to kind of lightly mention that this company, which has been touted, no longer exists. But hey, when you're nuclear, and you're pretending you know what you're doing when indeed you do not, and you get caught out in it, that makes you this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, as you can tell, there is no limit to the number of nuclear stories that continue to break like waves upon the shore. Luckily, there are a lot of individuals documenting nuclear challenges. In fact, an international gathering of activists who are using film as their medium of communication is taking place this week at Window Rock, Arizona, during the three-day International Uranium Film Festival. Now, as you've heard in past weeks, I am about to leave to get the stories from around the world and make connections that will enrich Nuclear Hot Seat throughout the coming years. Here's the problem. I'm going, but I still need help to cover the expenses of this trip. You know, little things like food. It's not a vacation, trust me. I am working full out, full time. And I need your help to sustain myself in the full upright position while I'm there so I can get the stories you know you'll only find on Nuclear Hot Seat. That's why I'm asking for a donation from you, specifically to help me with this trip, so I can bring you all the excitement, information, and passion of the festival. The way to help out is to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Donations of any size are appreciated, and as a bonus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personally signed copy of my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. A review of the book just published by Beyond Nuclear International says, It is a brilliant book, easy to read, about the deadly dangers of nuclear power that combines the personal with clear facts about why nuclear power is lethal. So do what you can to help me out as I cover the International Uranium Film Festival and bring it on home to you. NuclearHotSeat.com, the big red donate button. And of course, as always, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. The mission statement of Radiation and Public Health Project reads, to conduct research on health hazards of nuclear power and educate citizens and officials on results. And boy, do they ever. Since 1989, the group has been headed up by health researcher, epidemiologist Joseph Mangano. He is author or co-author of 37 medical journal articles on radiation health, with a 38th coming up, and is the author of the books Low-Level Radiation and Immune System Damage, An Atomic Era Legacy, Radioactive Baby Teeth, The Cancer Link, and 2013's Mad Science, The Nuclear Power Experiment. Joe managed the study of strontium-90 in baby teeth and now manages the citizen-based radiation monitoring programs near Indian Point in New York and Oyster Creek in New Jersey, 
where there are nuclear facilities. Joe and I took a deep dive into the history of the medical impact of reactor radiation on communities around the country, as well as the implications and dangers posed by the Woolsey fires burning of contaminated material at the Santa Susana Field Lab. We spoke on Friday, November 23, 2018. Joe Mangano, always great to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. It is my pleasure, Lee B. Let's start out with some basics so that people can understand. What is epidemiology and what does an epidemiologist do? Epidemiology is a fancy word for health statistician, for health statistics. Okay, it's simply the science of evaluating patterns and trends in disease rates and death rates. Nothing more than that. When you say you're studying these rates, where do you get your data from? The data that is often used comes from local, state, and federal health agencies. For a long, long time, they have kept track of all deaths in this country. In fact, on, online, we have them all available since for the year 1968, and on paper, we have it from before. And there are even other databases, such as state cancer registries, which track not cancer deaths but cancer cases which are used of course one can do their own research but it's really the health department's job to do this and now with the internet they've made it uh, quite available for statisticians to use through radiation and public health project the group that you have what are some of the studies that you have already done on nuclear sites we've basically spent close to 30 years now studying trends and patterns of radiation-sensitive diseases near nuclear power plants. We've done studies on childhood cancer, thyroid cancer, on infant mortality, on low-weight births, and we study them in different ways. We look at when nuclear plants open, if there are any increases in rates. When nuclear plants close, we, we look for um, any, any declines in rates. We compared different plants to see which ones have the highest, the highest rates of cancer and other diseases. There's only really one study that we've home-cooked, you know, done by ourselves, and that was called the baby tooth study, where we collected 5,000 baby teeth and had a lab test them for levels of a particular radioactive chemical called strontium-90. What were the results of the baby tooth study? Uh, well, we found, number one, that closer to nuclear plants, the average strontium-90 is about 40% higher than far from nuclear plants. We found that comparing uh, babies born in the early 80s to the late 90s, the average strontium-90 level increased 50%. And the third thing, maybe most important, is three nuclear plants, when strontium-90 levels went up over time, local childhood cancer rate, children under 10 years old, would go up. And when strontium-90 went down, the childhood cancer rate would go down. We've published them in five medical journal articles. We've done 37 altogether, and uh, five were devoted to, to this study, it's, which, by the way, is the only study still to this date of radioactive chemical levels in bodies of people who live near nuclear plants. That is shocking in and of itself. What are some of the more disturbing or shocking or eye-opening discoveries that you have made among these 37 studies? 
There's several, and I'm going to say the first one is that series of, of analyses near three nuclear plants in New York and New Jersey. The match between trends in strontium-90 in, in children's teeth and childhood cancer was really, really close. It's almost like you have a, you can picture a graph with two lines on it. And the two lines look the same. I mean, you know, when one goes up, the other goes up. When one goes down, the other goes down. They, they, were, they matched in three times in a row. I mean, the this, this statistical probability was extremely strong. That might be the, the biggest one. For the first time, we have definitively shown that when you live near a nuclear plant, you get more radiation in your body and that it increases your chance of disease. Childhood cancer is only one. That's just the beginning. There should have been more of these studies done, but have not. They were done years ago uh, with the atomic bomb testing, but, but never to connect them with, with health. That, I think, might be the biggest one. The second one, I would say, is we, back in, Lord, about the, the early 2000s, did a study of eight nuclear plants in the U.S. that closed. And we took a look in the first two years after shutdown in the county or two counties closest to the plant. And in eight out of eight counties, we found a very high decline in infant deaths and in childhood cancers. Eight out of eight, all parts of the country. The states where we found large declines in infant deaths the first two years after the reactor closed, triple the national average, by the way. There was one in California, Humboldt Bay. There was one in Colorado, Fort St. Vrain, Wisconsin, La Crosse. There was one in Illinois called Zion, Maine called Maine Yankee. One in Connecticut, Haddam Neck. Michigan called Big Rock Point. And just to reiterate, these are places where within two years after the shutdown of the nuclear reactors, infant deaths and childhood cancer rates went down. Yes, down well below the national decline. The national decline was something around 6%, and the decline in, in the counties near closed reactors, 18%. And this is hundreds of, of infant deaths we're talking about. And that's just the beginning. You know, the, the infants are the ones, you know, the young, young ones are, are the ones that really will show the good or, or bad effects of radiation most quickly. It's the speed with which their cells are reproducing and they are growing that makes them more vulnerable. Exactly. They have a very, very immature um, immune system and, uh, right, the cells are growing fast. So if you damage a cell, you're going to damage a lot more cells in the fetus or in the infant than you would in adults. And what was the third example of a remarkable implication that came from your work? There's so many, but, but I'll pick one, and that is... New York City, as you know, is the most populated city in the country. And just 35 miles north of midtown Manhattan, there is a plant, nuclear plant called Indian Point. They have two large reactors that have been operating since the mid-70s. And we did a study, it was published just in 2017, that took a look at the rates of thyroid cancer. Why thyroid cancer? Thyroid cancer is known to be one of the most radiation-sensitive cancers, because one of the types of radiation from nuclear plants, iodine, once it's ingested into the body through food or, or water or breathing, it immediately goes to the thyroid gland 
and it either kills or attacks cells. That's a pretty clear-cut one. And we took a look at the four counties closest to Indian Point, all of which are 20 miles or less from the plant. Uh, is about 1.8 million people. It's a you know, very populated area. And back in the, in the late 70s, now the, the reactors had just started, thyroid cancer rate in those counties was 22% below the rest of the state. And now it's 55% higher. Okay? I mean, thyroid wow. cancer is going up everywhere, but it's really skyrocketing uh, near Indian Point. And it involves a lot of people, okay? I mean, 400 cases a year where years ago was, I think, 60 a year. I mean, it's serious. We were shocked. We, we know that thyroid cancer is, is affected, but we, we had no idea it would be affected by this much. So given your track record of being able to look at existing medical statistics from legitimate sources and discovering patterns that point to the damage created by radiation, let's take a look at your work with Santa Susana Field Lab. How did you first learn about the Santa Susana Field Lab and what inspired you to study it? Well, honestly, I have to admit that I started with the group in 1989. And at that time, Santa Susana was really not high on the radar screen as far as nuclear plants and their problems. Santa Susana was not a nuclear power plant, but it was really a series of research reactors. It's sitting 30 miles northwest of Los Angeles. It operated these 10 reactors between the years 1957 and 1964. This was part of the Cold War I guess, boom in trying to find ways to make uh, electricity through the atom, through nuclear power. And the government was giving out grants to any company that was, was willing to give it a shot. And they chose this company, North American Aviation, and its, its sub-company called Atomics International. Already the, the site had been occupied by a company called Rocketdyne. They were making rockets, you know, to use in, in warfare. And that, that was a source of pollution as well, but we'll set them aside for the moment. So Atomics International got going in 1955. They built reactors in, in the late 50s and early 60s. And they were testing new ways to make a nuclear energy. The, the one that we're going to focus on is the one with the 1959 meltdown which may well be the worst meltdown in American history. It was called the sodium reactor experiment. Generally with nuclear reactors, the, the idea of making electricity starts where you take uranium atoms in the core of the reactor and you bombard them with neutrons. You split them, okay? And that does two things. First of all, it creates very high energy. And second of all, it creates over 100 chemicals not known to, in, in nature which are all radioactive and must be contained. Now, this is the exact same procedure used to explode an atomic bomb. The only difference here is that in a nuclear power plant, you cool the core to a reasonable level, usually with water. If you didn't, you would immediately have a huge meltdown like Chernobyl or Fukushima. You cool it with water. Back in the late 50s, one of the ideas as an alternative, is to cool the core with sodium, okay? Sodium, which was pumped through pipes and would 
help cool these red-hot radioactive particles. Looking back, it was really kind of a complicated thing to do because not just the core needed cooling by sodium, but the sodium going through the pipes also needed cooling because when the sodium gets too hot, it explodes, it needs to be kept at a certain temperature. The bottom line here is it was an idea. Three other U.S. reactors tried this. Two just opened briefly, and one in Idaho, a small one in Idaho, operated for 30 years. It never created much energy, so there are none today. And, and out of the almost 400 reactors in the world today, only two use sodium as a coolant. The rest use water. So okay. this is an experiment that quickly failed. With the failure, there was, we know, the release of radiation because it was not in a containment structure. It was just in what could be thought of as an industrial shell building. And when the meltdown happened and radiation was released, they opened the vents in the building and they let the radiation go wherever it would. Let me make this very, very clear. Even though today we have many great concerns, safety and health concerns from nuclear plants, Years ago, the concerns were, were really should have been much, much greater. It was really a very relaxed system where meltdowns were frequent. You know, you'll hear from certain media or nuclear proponents that the only meltdowns in history have been, you know, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. A absolutely wrong. There was one in Canada in 1952. There was one in Idaho in 1955. Soviet Union, 57. United Kingdom, 57, Pennsylvania, 1960, Idaho again, 1961, and then actually four of the 10 reactors at Santa Susana had meltdowns. And perhaps the worst thing is workers were not kept protected at all, and not just during meltdowns, but during routine use. And the buildings themselves, at least today's reactors, have a containment around the core made made of concrete. Back then, especially this reactor we're going to talk about, this sodium reactor experiment reactor, had no dome, you know, concrete dome, which they have now. So when, whenever any, any radiation got loose, whoosh, up it went into the air. Really the legacy of, of Santa. So given the problems, and you're saying that there were four meltdowns on the site, and we know that there were 10 reactors, and the site was tremendously contaminated, we now come to the Woolsey fire, which just took place. And it started, there's languaging out there where people are saying, the media has been saying, well, the fire started near the Santa Susana Field Lab, but none of the buildings where the meltdown happened were burned. But that creates a false illusion of the safety there, because in truth, the entire site is contaminated. And the fire broke out only 1,000 yards away from the building, but it was on the Santa Susana site. With that being the case, what was and is the potential for the spread of radionuclides and the potential for impact on health? Well, Santa Susana is just a, I can't say it strongly enough, a very, very contaminated place. And not just from the 1959 meltdown, but three other meltdowns. Their routine operations, they used to, to do away with the radioactive waste by putting it in a burn pit in barrels, and they would shoot with rifles, shoot the barrels, and they would explode. 
and the radiation would go up in, into the uh, to the atmosphere. All right. By the way, with workers wearing no protection, the components that were you know of course affected by by radiation were burned and, and boiled for for days. I mean, this is just a, a routine part of business. And then on top of that, we had these four meltdowns, and especially the one in July 1959. That, as you'll see, may well be the biggest meltdown in, in the country. It was an experiment they were doing at this reactor. And in the past two years, they had done 13 experiments. And just before that, in the same year, 1959, twice they found on the fuel rods in, in the core, which is where the radiation collects, they found a, a black and sticky substance. It was found to be something called tetraline, which was a sodium coolant, and it probably leaked into the pump, which allowed the sodium to get out of the pump on the first day of this next experiment. The monitors went, quote, off the scale. These are quotes from workers at the time. Instead of just shutting it down and trying to figure out what was going on, it was like, let's try it again tomorrow. And they started up again. Same thing. This went on for 14 days when finally, finally, they said, okay, enough. The damage is this. There were 43 rods, 13 of them melted down completely. And a huge amount of radiation escaped right through the top of, of the building. As, as one of the workers said, it was just a building with walls. The worst part is there is no data on releases and exposures. In fact, after the first day of this two-week crazy um, experiment, the badges were taken away from workers. So we have no idea how much they got. When you say badges, these are radiation monitoring badges? That's correct, which are given to workers when they go to work in the morning and given back when they when they leave for home that night to see how much exposure they had. No, they were taken. Here's a couple of quick points about the damage. Again, how much was released? How much did people get? We'll never really know, but there have been estimates. David Lockbaum, scientist from the Union for Concerned Scientists, estimated that just before this two-week period started and just after, the amount of radiation just above the reactor is about a million times greater. That was his estimate. A million times greater than than just before the, this experiment started, the, the two-week period started. Lockbaum also estimated he took one of the 100-plus chemicals only produced in reactors and atomic bombs, iodine, and he estimated that compared to Three Mile Island, Santa Susana emitted 450 times more iodine. Now, we're not sure exactly how much got out of Three Mile either, and then another gentleman Arjun Makajani from the Institute of Energy and Environmental estimated that the amount of iodine was about 260 times greater than Three Mile Island. Again, we don't have exact answers here, but clearly what got out was a lot. And of course, a lot still remains on the site, which even to this day, almost 60 years later, has not cleaned up. The history of studies of health is unfortunately a skimpy one. First of all, for 20 years, the company and the federal government did not publicly disclose any of this. It was only when Professor Dan Hirsch from UCLA had his students go to libraries and they found many, many documents about this. There was one study in 1990 in the three census districts closest to the plant that bladder cancer was 50% higher than the rest of the country. 
1996, the Department of Energy funded a study. They found that workers from the plant who were working there at that period had elevated levels of lung cancer, blood cancers, lymph system cancers, digestive cancers, oral, pharynx, esophageal, and stomach cancers, and published it in 1999. Was there any kind of outcry when the study got published? Yes. Each time something was found, like the original papers from the professor and his students, and media actually was very good in in presenting it. Usually the Los Angeles media, such as the LA Times and the NBC and the CBS affiliate. Several years ago, uh, in 2013, I published a book called Mad Science, The Nuclear Power Experiment. And I dedicated two chapters to Santa Susana and an appendix with, with some health statistics in them just trying to take a look at what health issues, especially current health issues, might be um, occurring near the site. Again, we start with the very youngest. Most data is only county-wide. However, there is zip code data for babies who are born at low weights, born prematurely. And sure enough, in the mid-2000s, the three zip codes that are closest to the um, site had a low birth weight rate of 37% higher than California, all right? And we're talking about many, many births here, hundreds. Hundreds more with low birth weight than in the rest of the state. Oh, yes. And then I I looked at Ventura County, which is, you know, goes beyond the site, but it's certainly close enough. Ventura County is number one in infant mortality. If you looked at the 18 largest counties in California, which – make up about 90% of of the state. Ventura County was highest in infant mortality, in childhood cancer cases, 0 to 19, in childhood cancer deaths, 0 to 19, and then finally in thyroid cancer cases. These numbers are are, are a little, you know, about a decade old. They need updating, but this is the kind of work that a health department is really obligated to do, all right? Whenever you have something that's questionably toxic, in this case, definitely toxic, there should be a steady, comprehensive program measuring health changes around the site. Okay, people have a right to know about this. And has there been any such study done by the health departments? Absolutely not. Just the two I mentioned to you, the California Health Department in 1990 and the DOE study in 1996 about about workers. Given that We've just been through a wildfire that started on this property, this very toxically compromised property. And 85% of the 2,600-plus acre site burned. There's a high likelihood that toxic materials and possibly radioactive materials were released in the smoke and in the particulate matter that then turned to ash. What is your take on the potential danger of this? And if you had the chance to study it, what kind of study would you implement? The implication here is that in addition to the people who have already been exposed, people who are alive in 1959 and, and earlier, now we have exposed a whole new generation with a whole new dose of this toxic radiation, basically because we did not have the political will to go out immediately and clean the plant up. 
the cleanup has really not even started, and it, July makes 60 years since the meltdown. And of course, we're doing this in an area that's highly populated. Again, Los Angeles is just 30 miles away. Ventura County, where it's located, has got almost a million people. It's an issue of epidemiology, but it's really an issue of political will. All right, we do have health departments in each state and each local area, and they are charged with, uh, among other things, ensuring that the public is kept safe from any harmful toxin. And that just hasn't been done in the 1950s, and here we are 60 years later almost, and it still isn't being done. How long will it be, in your estimation, before we start seeing the health impact of this toxic smoke that was released by the fire? If I was doing a study, I would, of course, have to wait a little bit, but I would compare like the years 2017 and 2018. Most of 2018 occurred before the fire and compare with uh, 2019 and 2020. And let's start with the very youngest, fetal deaths, you know, the stillbirths, births at low weight, births that were premature, um, infant deaths, you know, within the first month and then within the first year. And then as we go on, um, cancers in, in younger children, if we see something relatively immediate, it would be in the youngest. Because radiation exposure does not turn into cancer in, in seconds. You know, there, there is a, a known lag anywhere from, oh gosh, five years and, until even you know, decades later after the time of exposure until the disease shows up. But definitely start with the very young. If there were pressure placed politically here in the greater Los Angeles area and in Ventura County to get such a study started, where would be the pressure point? Where could we start agitating for proper epidemiology to be done? On paper, the answer is go right to the health department, but in real life, that has always been a dead end. I think the only way to do that is through elected officials, those elected officials that have the moral ability to that their health departments do this. Again, since the 1950s, there's only been one national study of cancer in your nuclear plants, and that was done in 1990. And the only reason it was done, it was done by the National Cancer Institute, the only reason it was done was Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, was given a, a report about a, about a reactor in Massachusetts. And he went right to the head of the National Cancer Institute, and they immediately wrote him back and said, uh, yes, Senator Kennedy, we're, we're, we're in the middle of, of doing, a, doing a study. And that was it. Since 1990, no studies, no plans to do any studies. So that, that to me, it is really in the hands of the elected officials to, to make this process run. Is there any private way that concerned citizens could get together if the system isn't working, if the government isn't working, if the health departments aren't working, could they come directly to you or is there some other mechanism by which they could institute a study? As I said, especially with the internet now, we have a lot of data that's, that's posted publicly and our group has made a, a lot of use of, of this information. However, we are one small group and we have a monopoly in this country on, on such studies. Nobody else does any kind of studies. Meaning any kind of studies on nuclear radiation impact? On the health impacts of, of, of radiation. Nope, it's just not done. There's no 
studies outside of the government, outside of, of, of industry, you know, what I'll call independent, that, that does this because every time you do a study and say that we think there's a connection here, the, the outcry is, is huge and the name calling is, is terrible and every effort is done on all levels of government to squash or discredit this kind of information. The other way things are done, and it, it happened with Santa Susana, once the story became public about what had really happened, concerned citizens got together, and like it's happened near a lot of nuclear plants, they bond together and come up with clusters. You know, people talk to people, and, they, and after a while they, they realize, like, oh, my, we have a lot of cancer in this particular area. That is very helpful. It gets good public attention, but it is not true epidemiology. It doesn't catch everybody. So while that is quite helpful, it doesn't tell you the full story. And very often the government usually takes any potential cancer cluster and tells you why it isn't a cluster. I, I, I think that the number of clusters that government has declared, I think it's you can count them on one hand. To rely on government to honestly investigate a potential cancer cluster brought by citizens who see a lot of cancer in, in, in a particular area is a dead end. A lo this, this is done a lot. And many cases, I was, well, almost 100% of the cases, the government will return a verdict of not guilty, that by using their methods, they could not identify a real cluster. But we all know what that is, all right? They have an agenda of trying to minimize uh, any, any damage that had been done. Minimize damage and manage panic. That's correct. Joe, if people would like to learn more about your Santa Susana field lab findings, where can they do so? They are in the book I wrote in 2013. It's called Mad Science, the Nuclear Power Experiment. I am the author, M-A-N-G-A-N-O is the last name. And it can be bought through OR Books, which is the publisher, or on Amazon. I devote two chapter, two full chapters to Santa Susana and the appendix about all the statistics I found near the plant, the health statistics. Joe, this has been a very deep dive into Santa Susana history and also the implications of the fire. And I know that there's a large listenership to Nuclear Hot Seat in and around that area that's going to be very interested in what you have to say. And I hope it leads to you and or health departments or all of the above doing the kind of research that we deserve so that we can learn exactly what happened as a result of the fire and what we face going forward. You said it there because uh, what's happened in the past has happened, all right? We can't change that. What we can do is, first of all, get moving on cleanup to make sure that the contamination is minimized or, or removed so that future generations don't have to suffer like past ones did. From your mouth to somebody in power's ears, and I hope Gavin Newsom or some of his people are listening because he's the incoming governor and it's falling smack in the middle of his lap. I urge him to take a, a more honest look than previous people in office. Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health, I want to thank you for this incredibly informative update and for being my guest on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure. That was Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project. Note that he cites the work of Arjun Makajani, 
So that you know, Arjun is an electrical and nuclear engineer and president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. Now, you can learn more about the astonishing work of RPHP by going to radiation.org, and Joe's book containing the Santa Susana Field Lab chapters is called Mad Science, the Nuclear Power Experiment, and of course, like everything else in the known universe, it is available on Amazon. Activist shout-outs! Well, first, a correction. Last week, I cited the song Ain't Nowhere You Can Run and said that it was written by Bonnie Raitt, and it was not. It was written by Holly Near. Both important, great singers, but Holly's the one who wrote it. Two weeks ago, in our Santa Susana Field Lab Woolsey Fire Radiation Special, episode number 386, Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education gave preliminary information on how anyone living within 25 miles of the Santa Susana Field Lab can have dust from their home analyzed for possible radiation contamination at absolutely no cost to them. Because of this week's focus on Santa Susana Field Lab, we're re-presenting that report. And afterwards, we'll have an update on the protocols for submitting materials so that anyone within the qualifying distance of 25 miles from the site can participate in the testing. Hello to Fairwind's friends in California. Our hearts go out to all of you as you are being ravaged by fire. We know that many people are worried about the Woolsey fire and the chance of radioactive contamination from Santa Susana. At Fairwinds Energy Education, we let the data do the talking. With that in mind, Fairwinds and PSR California, Physicians for Social Responsibility, are interested in working together to collect and analyze dust from vacuum cleaner bags and air conditioning filters collected in homes within a 25-mile radius of the Santa Susana nuclear site. The specific contents of the dust are presently unknown, but the recent fire presents an opportunity to scientifically analyze the dust that was volatilized from the fire. PSR will act as a point of collection for any dust samples, and Fairwinds will provide analysis of the samples. Here are the important points to remember. One, Wait until the fires have stopped to collect any data. Two, starting with a new clean vacuum cleaner bag, thoroughly vacuum your home twice in a period of about a week after the fire is over. Fairwinds doesn't need the contents of the entire vacuum cleaner bag, nor do we need cat hair, dog hair, or dust bunnies. We need less than 10 grams that's about a tea bag worth or a teaspoonful of dust from the bottom of the vacuum cleaner bag. Each of those samples should be placed into two Ziploc bags, one inside the other, with a GPS location of the home where the vacuum sample occurred and the name and phone number written on the bag with a Sharpie so it doesn't wipe off. Your name and phone number will not be provided to other parties. Contact us at Fairwinds Energy Education at info at fairwindsenergy.org 
and we'll put you in contact with the appropriate people at PSR who are consolidating your samples for shipment. This is Maggie Gunderson, the founder and president of Fairwinds Energy Education. Fairwinds' work is based upon scientific analysis. That's why we're really counting on you to collect these dust samples. By the same token, it will take several months for the results to be analyzed and for that data to be published. Please hang tight. We're there with you. And we're, again, very sorry for the pain and suffering that's happening now in California from all these forest fires. Thank you. Thank you for caring so much about this important scientific effort. That was Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. And Fairwinds is spelled with an E right smack in the middle of it. Now, since posting that report two weeks ago, Fairwinds has added a field sampling component to the testing. This will include in-house sampling of other than vacuum cleaner dust, as well as outdoor sampling. And they will provide information on how to do that. Now, this is very important. Do not send any samples to Fairwinds unless you call or send an email first and receive confirmation back that they agree to accept your materials. If you send your samples in without going through this approval process, whatever you send will be thrown out unopened. This late edition, Fairwinds Energy Education has sent Nuclear Hot Seat an advanced copy of the protocols, the safety requirements, and the steps you need to take to maintain safety while collecting your samples. This entire document will be posted on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 388. Here's today's final thought. There is absolute joy in sharing time, space, and thought directly with other activists. That's a big reason why I look forward to seeing all of you who will be attending the International Uranium Film Festival at Window Rock, Arizona, starting on November 29. That's Thursday of this week. Some of you who will be there I've known, at least online, since shortly after Fukushima. And of course, there are many of you I've not yet met, but I look forward to doing so. And if you're not able to get there, Nuclear Hot Seat will bring you there in our follow-up report on the films, the filmmakers, the activists, and the audience. It promises to be a great show, so stay tuned. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 27, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Dr. Gordon Edwards and ccnr.org, daily-times.com, currentargus.com, idahopress.com, usnews.com, desertnews.com, lancasteronline.com, thestate.com, bloomberg.com, thinkprogress.org, journalnow.com, dailymail.co.uk, asahi.com, thetimes.co.uk, businessinsider.com, nytimes.com, vox.com, focustaiwan.tw, dianuke.org, theguardian.com, ninenews.com.au, energytransition.org, the soul dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for world nuclear news and then drown their sorrows afterwards in too many illegal drugs, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and, of course, 
big, big shout out to all of you who are listening. Nuclear Hot Seat supporters around the world. 123 countries on six continents and counting. And thanks to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. If you know of a community radio station that would like to cover our show, we would be happy to talk with them and make sure it is possible. All of you who listen, show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting upon it. I couldn't do this journey without you. As we all get together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth, supporters of atomic awareness, and all kinds of other good stuff. Thanks for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page. If you haven't stopped by lately, or yet, come on down, check it out, click like, follow, post, and share. And of course, if you're interested in our back episodes, you can find them at NuclearHotSeat.com. If you add slash blog to the URL, you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time. And if you want to know about my book, just put in NuclearHotSeat.com slash book and you'll get all the information you need. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered by email every week, it's easy. When you go to our landing page at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down and look for the yellow box. Especially if you're on a smartphone or a tablet, it may take a while, but trust me, it is there. And with just your first name and an email address, you'll get each week a link to the latest show. Now, if you have a story lead, hot tip, suggestion of someone to interview, hey, I'm open. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues from your backyard to around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that with nuclear, the number one issue is and must be long-range safety for people and the environment. Anything less is madness. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So do not, not, not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.